Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. I'd like to welcome uh, again our guest speaker, uh, Scott Polander. Scott is the Director of Outreach for Caring Network. I just spent last weekend with him. Uh, they had a, uh, a church summit there where we talked about strategies uh, to bring life uh, and redeem life from the whole abortion thing that's going on in our country. Um, he uh, is, uh, has served as pastor at Bethany uh, Chapel in Wheaton uh, before taking this call as the director of outreach. He resides in Wheaton with his wife, Jody and his three daughters. And they're not here with us because he speaks out everywhere and they would never get a chance to be at their own church. So, you know, grab him, give him a big hug. He does a great job. He also asked me before he steps up here to do the reading. So sit back. It's a powerful story, you know. And uh, let's see what God's going to do to us and speak to us today. A reading from the Gospel of John. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing the disciples, more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, uh, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again to Galilee. And he had passed through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And then there came a woman, a Samaritan, to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it you, being a Jew, are going to ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living waters. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw wealth with, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then are you gonna get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Um, are you greater than uh, Father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I have to give them shall never thirst. But the water that I have will give them, um, will give, I'm sorry, will give him, will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I don't have to be thirsty or come here all the way down to draw. 
And he said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, yeah, you're correctly have said that, that I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are with now is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to her, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and your people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare to us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. Whew. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he was speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek? Why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out to the city and were coming to him. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world, the Word of God. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you so much for your partnership with Caring Network. Uh, as Wayne mentioned, uh, your partnership with us is really incredible, and the work that we do, it really brings people from darkness to life, and we really do reach women similar to this woman who are in darkness, who do not know Christ, and we have very good news, um, and it's because of your partnership with us that we are able to do this work, so thank you. I also want to thank you for inviting me personally to open God's Word with you this morning. Um, so Grace Bible Church, I also was, was talking with Marty, happy birthday Marty, um, talking with Marty beforehand. I actually go to Grace, a Grace Church as well, but the word grace, I believe we are losing the idea of grace in our culture. John's Gospel what we're going to see this morning, um, even you can hear it just in reading it, but what we're going to see this morning is just an incredibly powerful picture of the grace of God in this interaction between Jesus and this, this woman who, like us, is a sinner. 
And it's my hope that the glory of the gospel of grace, the true grace that can only be found, that can only be found in Jesus, will overflow in us a bit this morning like, like rivers of living water. And so let's, let's just begin right now asking for God's help as we hear his word. Father, we pray that you will work in us, Lord. Father, we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of your glory, and we need your grace. We need the Lord Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears that hear, that you, our eyes would see, and we would see wonderful things from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I said that I think that we are losing uh, the idea, the, the term grace, we still hear it some, but I still think that we hear about it less and less. You guys don't because you're named Grace Bible Church. But um, there are many, many competing definitions of grace today. Listen to what, how Webster's Dictionary defines it. It defines it as charm or a pleasing appearance or effect. And so in it actually refers to uh, the grace of an actress like Audrey Hepburn, okay? Well, we don't really use it like that. You can tell we're, using, we're losing even this way of using grace. It can also mean approval or favor. So staying in someone's good graces. When did you say that last? We're even losing the way that it's defined in Webster's Dictionary. Um, and we're told in Isaiah 53 that Jesus did not have this sort of grace. He did not have anything in his appearance. And so the biblical view of grace is very, very different. And there are even competing pictures of grace in the church. Some would be surprised that some um, the hardest words in Scripture are actually spoken by Jesus. Uh, I mean, take a look at the very last words that Jesus speaks in Revelation 21 and 22 sometime, he speaks very, very straight words very regularly. And yet we know that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And so in the midst of these competing pictures of grace, we're going to look at John's gospel at what I really believe is just one of the most wonderful pictures of the grace of God in the entire Bible. So John 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here in John 4, in this account of Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman, we have a picture of the wonderful grace of Jesus, God in the flesh, full of grace and truth. And in this account, if we listen, we will hear clearly and powerfully the lavish, abundant grace of the gospel. What John 4 pictures as overflowing grace, just overflowing, superabundant grace. So in the previous chapter, it's probably one of the chapters that you know best in the whole Bible. John 3 is, I mean, what, what chapter is better known than John 3 in the Bible? Okay. And in the previous chapter, what we see is Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. And in 
John 3, we see that Nicodemus is an insider of insiders. Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. He's not just a teacher. He's the teacher of Israel. This guy is an insider of insiders. And now, in this Samaritan woman, we see Jesus, Jesus showing grace and mercy and love to an outsider of outsiders. This woman is an outcast among outcasts, even with her own people. With Nicodemus, we see the truth that no one is so good that they don't need to be saved. And with this woman, we see the truth that nobody is so bad that they cannot be saved. But what has made this woman an outcast among outcasts? How has she become an outsider? Well, unlike Nicodemus, we do not even know her name. There are just so many differences between Nicodemus and her. Her name is not even mentioned. But we do know a number of things about her. Um, First of all, she is a Samaritan. And we know that the Jews and Samaritans had a longstanding um, disdain they did not get along. They did not even interact with each other. And so the first thing that makes her an outsider is her ethnicity. She was an outcast ethnically. The Samaritans were part of the people of the 10 northern tribes of Israel. They were up north. And these people were conquered by the Assyrians in the 8th century BC. And the Assyrians, they were absolutely brutal people. And when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, they took into exile the wealthy and skilled Jews, and they brought them to the east. And then what they did is they actually brought other people groups that they had conquered in to live with these Jews that were moved to the east, these wealthy and skilled Jews, and they had them intermarry. And so this really was meant to make this remnant uh, kind of diluted, to make them diluted Jews. And that would really minimize the chance of any sort of insurrection. And this is how the Samaritans became diluted Jews. We're told of this in Second Kings in the Bible. So the first problem is that the Samaritans were considered half-breeds, ethnically They are considered outcasts. The second thing that made her an outcast was her religion. Not only is she considered to be an outcast outcast ethnically, she's also religiously, she's an apostate. And the Samaritans, we even see in this passage, they had developed their own religious traditions. So first of all, they did not accept the Hebrew canon, the Hebrew Bible. Second of all, you can see in this passage, if you look at verses 20 in 21, they focused their worship not on Jerusalem and the temple there, but on Mount Gerizim and the temple that the Samaritans had built there. And so their religion, it was really a combination of pagan religion and true Old Testament religion, kind of like Mormonism today or one of... uh, the religions that mix some of the scripture with other other scriptures. So we see this actually in Jesus' statement in verse 22. He says, you worship what you do not know. 
We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And so she was an outcast religiously, and she practiced syncretism. She practiced true Old Testament religion and false religion mixed together. Third, she was also an outcast because of her gender. She is a woman, and rabbis did not teach women. And Jesus, being recognized as a rabbi, was forbidden forbidden by rabbinic law, not by biblical law, but by rabbinic, by the traditions. He was forbidden to speak with a woman in public. And so you actually see in verse 27... Um, the disciples are shocked. They are very surprised that Jesus is speaking with a woman. And you actually see this also in verse 9, her response of mockery to Jesus. It's not just uh, on the fact that, that she is, he is asking for water from a Samaritan, but he is asking for water from a Samaritan woman. So this is very different than our egalitarian culture today, where I have three daughters, no sons, grew up with, in a household of four boys, three daughters. But a lot of my daughter's classmates, my daughters will go to college. A lot of their classmates, uh, the boys are falling behind. Um, they are in crisis, a lot of the, the younger men in our culture. Well, This is a very different culture than what we are looking at today. In this culture, a woman could not be a witness in a court of law because a woman's testimony was considered untrustworthy. And yet what's amazing is Christianity actually is the force that changed this worldwide um, because that's exactly who the biblical writers use as witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, right? So... We learn in John's Gospel that Mary Magdalene was the first witness of the resurrection. That is incredible. In fact, the role of women in the first century as Christianity exploded. Rodney Stark, a sociologist, he, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. He attributes the allure of Christianity to women and their care for women and children for the explosion of Christianity in the Roman world. And so um, this is a very different culture, and what Jesus is doing has actually shaped our culture today so much. And then you see, actually, who is testifying here of Jesus? Who is the witness? This woman we see in verse 39, that she goes, she is the witness, and many Samaritans believe because of her testimony. And so finally... Why else is she? The final reason she is an outcast is because she is a sinner. She is an outcast of outcasts, an outcast even with her own people. And we see this in verse 6. We are told it was the sixth hour. And so it is the heat of the day, a time when women did not usually go to the well to draw water, a time when you avoided the heat. And she goes to draw water. Why? Well, almost certainly to avoid the other women. So her public shame has led to her isolation. And what is this shame? Look at verses 16 through 18 with me. 
verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So she has had five husbands, and the one she now has is not her husband. And so this woman, she is basically at this point unmarriageable. Men don't even have to marry her to have her. They don't have to make a commitment to her. And so she is, she is a cast-off. I think we sense that even just reading it. And so Jesus has come to her, and he talks to this woman, this woman who has looked for satisfaction in relationship after relationship, this woman who is used to being either the object of a man's lust or possibly spiritual disdain as well. When was the last time a man, whether a Samaritan or a Jewish man, treated her with dignity and respect? And Jesus comes and he doesn't ignore her. He doesn't treat her improperly and he does not despise her. But he asks her, in verse 7, he asks her, for a drink. And the Samaritan woman's surprise is completely understandable in verse 9. Some Jewish rabbis taught that to eat and drink with Samaritans, it was worse than eating pig's flesh. Now, most of us know that pig's flesh is delicious, but to them, it was an abomination. Okay? Um, Jesus Jesus does not view this this way. He has sent his disciples to get food in a Samaritan town, and he has asked this woman for a drink. And then he offers this half-breed, this heretic, this woman, this sinner. He offers her fellowship and salvation. He, he offers her living water, living water in an area that is very, very dry very dry land. Jesus offers her living water. And what is this living water? Well, in John 7, a few chapters uh, up, Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so this phrase, that this living water, it's going to become a spring, it's going to well up to eternal life. I mean, this is actually the way that the prophets, especially Isaiah, talked about the promise of what God was going to do when Jesus came, the Messiah came, and when the Spirit was given. Isaiah chapter 12 says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Which is what we will see at the end of this chapter. Isaiah 44 verse 3 says, For I will pour out water on a thirsty land, 
and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And then a well-known passage, Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And so a person's deepest longing, their deepest spiritual longings will be filled by knowing God personally. God is going to come and fill these people's longing amazingly forever. And here Jesus is calling this woman who thirsts and he is offering her the blessing of what what is the picture of water? He's offering the blessing of washing and forgiveness and relationship, being satisfied, relationship and, and love that comes through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this woman who has experienced rejection, who has experienced emptiness, she will be filled and satisfied. Now, think about this. Jesus, who is perfectly holy, absolutely sinless. Uh, We sometimes think, how can Christians be around uh, people who are involved in living a life of sin? But we know that if Jesus treated us this way, if Jesus treated you, if he treated me this way, um, we would never have been saved. I don't know about you. I feel actually I'm a little bit Nicodemus. I'm a little bit like this woman. I don't know how you personally feel. Some of you might feel like Nicodemus. Maybe none of you have been involved in scandalous sin ever in your life. Maybe you come from a background like this woman, but Jesus does not keep his distance. He is a friend of sinners. And really, a lot of the women who come to us at Caring Network um, have backgrounds more similar to this woman to this woman, and um, we have just a wonderful opportunity to minister to them when a lot of them truly are in crisis. Um, You know, we know that Jesus, who is holy, he delights to sit down and share table fellowship with sinners, no matter what sins they have been involved in. And so, just to be clear, Jesus, he acknowledges that she has sinned, and he calls her to repentance. That's very clear. He, he calls her to repent, but he knows that he can be gentle with her because she feels her sin. She knows her sin. And so Jesus is not always gentle and lowly, but with her, um, he is extremely gentle while acknowledging her sin. And so Jesus, he is not afraid to be associated with this woman. And what's really interesting is, well, she initially dismisses him as a Jew. She says he's Jewish, okay? She dismisses him. Later on in chapter 8, the Pharisees are going to accuse Jesus of having a demon and of being a Samaritan. And Jesus only rejects one thing. He says he doesn't have a demon, He does not say he's not a Samaritan. Why? Because he is willing to associate with sinners. He is willing to associate with outcasts. 
he is willing to associate with this woman. And so this should not be surprising to us when we even think of Jesus' genealogy in Matthew. The five women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and Mary. Um, Rahab and Ruth were Gentiles, and Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba, they were women of questionable character. The word made flesh associates with outcast to the extent that his lineage, his genealogy, has adulterers and prostitutes and Gentiles. And it's, it's not only that Jesus is willing to associate with, with her. Um, it's as we sung and as Wayne highlighted, Jesus is actually going after her. He is pursuing her. Unlike Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Jesus is going after her. Okay? It says that Jesus, verse 6, had to go through Samaria. And this is not because of geographic necessity, as you may know. Most people, the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we know that most people went around towards the sea instead of going the direct route. Why? Because that road was extremely dangerous. So it's not geographic necessity. But why did Jesus have to go? It's because of divine necessity. He wanted to meet this particular woman on this particular day at this particular well. And I want to close by noticing something about Jesus meeting the woman at the well. The pattern of a man traveling through a foreign land and meeting a woman at a well occurs three other times in the Bible. First, in Genesis 24, with Abraham's servant and Rebekah. Second, in Genesis 29, with Jacob and Rachel. And then third, in Exodus 2, with Moses and Zipporah. And all three of these accounts end in marriage. And so this meeting between Jesus and the woman at the well, it is supposed to bring our thoughts towards matrimony, towards marriage. Uh, Scott Hunter says, wedding imagery was used by the prophets to describe that glorious age to come that would be fulfilled when the Messiah came. Isaiah chapter 54 says, your husband is your maker, for the Lord has called you like a, like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit. In Isaiah chapter 62 as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And then, of course, Hosea says, and I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness, in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And so this long-awaited day of the Lord when God would come, when Jesus returns, it was likened unto a wedding where God's chosen people would be united to their maker. As, as we hear in Revelation 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So remember in John 2, 
I mean, where, where did Jesus' first miracle happen? At a wedding in Cana, right? And you may, not, you may feel like you know John 3 pretty well, but most of us miss. What did John the Baptist call Jesus in John 3, verse 29? John says that Jesus is the bridegroom. John said, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. And so John rejoices because he recognized that the age of the eschatological wedding, this future wedding of God coming and loving his people, I mean, this was so joyous for this woman. But John says, this joy of mine this time is here, this joy is complete. And so here, with this woman who has known pain and misery and agony and despair that comes with a broken marriage, this woman who has no husband is being pursued by the Lord Jesus. She is being grafted in to the bride of Christ. It's really the Ephesians 5 language of Christ in the church, of the bride and the bridegroom. So the Lord, he does not approach her to issue condemnation that she deserves, that we all deserve, but he approaches her to draw her to himself, and he will be her husband. And she's had six men, five husbands, the sixth man won't even marry her. Jesus is the seventh man. He's the perfect man. He is the one who has treated her purely and who has truly loved her. And so this one who is full of mercy and love and grace and truth, he has invited all of us to the wedding banquet despite our sin, despite our guilt and our need and even our occasional despair. Again, these chapters teach us that there's nobody so good that they don't need God's forgiveness. And there's nobody so bad that they cannot be forgiven. And we end by noticing that in verse 28, it says that she left behind her water jar. And this is important because this woman now has living water. She is filled. She is satisfied. This former outcast, she thirsts no more. And this is a great comfort that despite our sin, he invites each of us today. He invites us to repent of our sins. And he says, come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters and drink that your soul may live. Let's give thanks that God is gracious with us. Father, we thank you for your incredible grace, your overflowing grace, Lord. I pray that we would know this grace, Lord. We have all sinned, and Lord, we need your forgiveness. And we also need your nearness to us despite our sins. So Father, please bless us, bless every person here. I pray that you would draw us near to Jesus, that we would receive him in faith. And I pray this, Father, uh, for all of our joy, Lord.
but also your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.